This is The Long Run Show with Austin P. Wilson and Michael J. O'Connor. The Long Run Show is brought to you by Benzinger Podcasts for listeners like you. Thank you. All right, and welcome back to another episode of The Long Run Show. This is your host, Austin Wilson, along with Mike O'Connor. And today we are going to be having another guest on our show. We have Mark Yusko from Morgan Creek Capital. He's actually the founder and CIO of Morgan Creek Capital and the chief managing partner of Morgan Creek Digital. Hopefully I got that right, Mark. Um, and we're going to be good. We're going to be talking about uh, we're going to be talking about a lot of a lot of different things today, kind of spanning um, many different aspects. Obviously, Mark, you have a lot of experience uh, investing money and, and kind of allocating capital and also a lot of experience just with thinking about large long run issues, which which is the name of the show, right? And so that's what we wanted to to kind of pick your brain about today. Um, like, or not? But, but uh, no, look, I, I'll, I'll I'll just I'll chime in, Austin. I, I I am actually super excited to to do the show today because I I love to focus on the long run. You know, one of the things that I I really don't like is everything is focused on short-term, short-term and, and social media and the, just the explosion of, of content has made it even shorter and shorter. Right. And really, if you think about investing, you know, the art of investing, it, it really is about, about the long-term. And so, uh, you know, it's nice, you're, you're nice to say, you know, I have a lot of experience. That's just a very nice way of saying I'm old and, and I am. <laughs> And, and, and that's actually a good thing because it means you survived all the mistakes that you made when you were young. Right. But, but importantly, it, it, it goes to my whole career has been around long-term thinking. I mean, I, it, it's kind of a series of happy accidents. I mean, I didn't plan to be an investment guy. I actually planned to be an architect and then I tried pre-med and none of those things really fit. But uh, I went to work for an insurance company out of business school and the guy who was doing investments retired. And so I was now the investment guy. And what I found is it was the perfect thing for me as a, a science guy. And science is all about forming a hypothesis, forming an experiment, gathering data, testing the hypothesis, and then deciding if it's right or wrong. Right. And that's exactly what you do in investing, right? You come up with a yeah. hypothesis, you, you know, form an experiment, you, you make exposure, and then you test it, you gather the data and the market tells you whether you're right or wrong. And part of my aha moment over my, my uh, career was that time arbitrage. So long run thinking, right? The title of your show is the ultimate uh, win in investing. Okay. If you have a long time preference, if you have the ability to think longer term than the average investor, you will make more money. And mm. that's kind of cool. So, and, and, and you don't have to be right as often either. That's the nice thing is you don't have to always be right uh, or prove that you're right, which is very dangerous in investing. Yeah. Uh, so quick background, uh, went to school, like I said, to be, to be an architect or a doctor, then went to business school, came out, went into investing and, my next happy accident was I went back to my alma mater. I went back to Notre Dame and I got into endowment management. And what I realized was I thought investing when I worked for the bond management part of the insurance company and then an equity firm was that investing was just about picking stocks and bonds. That's what investing does. That's what the, the TV tells you. You should pick stocks, IBM or, or Jim or Ford. And what I realized is those were 15, 1.5% of the long-term returns. 85% of returns comes from asset allocation, the big picture allocation of capital across stocks, bonds, currencies, commodities within stocks. Do I go international? Do I go domestic? Do I go technology? Do I go healthcare? And those big asset allocation decisions drove everything. So the endowment model of investing, which I learned at Notre Dame, brought with me down here to University of North Carolina uh, at Chapel Hill, where I was the CIO there. That's what I learned and ultimately inculcated. Uh, and, and all that endowment model means is you have a long time horizon. It's permanent capital. Therefore, you have this ability to take advantage of time arbitrage. The second thing is you have to have an equity bias. Because if you want to have a long uh, term 
positive return, you need to outperform inflation. And bonds just don't do that by very much. So you have to have an equity orientation. But equity doesn't mean stocks. It means stocks. It means private equity. It means uh, venture capital. It means commodity equity. There's all kinds of equities. And then this, the, the next stage was I left the university back, actually now a long time ago, back in 2004. And I formed Morgan Creek Capital. And Morgan Creek Capital was just about bringing the endowment model to other investors, taking this idea of alternative thinking about investments to the masses. Now, everyone says, well, what do you mean alternative thinking? I'm like, well, I don't like the term alternative investments. People talk about it all the time, hedge funds or private equity or venture capital. Those are alternative investments. I'm like, alternative to what? You own stock, <laughs> you own bonds, you own currencies, and you own commodities. How I own them in a mutual fund, in a hedge fund, in a private partnership, doesn't change the nature that I own stocks, I own bonds, I own currencies and commodities. And the problem is whoever thought up the term alternatives was not a marketing guy or gal. They were not very smart, right? People don't like alternative stuff. Right. Alternative medicine, alternative music. They don't like alternative right. stuff. They're afraid it's of it. Usually, yeah, oh. it's usually a subculture, right? Yeah. And so what do they do? They put 5% in alternatives and 95% in traditional. Well, that doesn't make any sense because if the traditional stuff isn't attractive, why would you want to own it? So fast forward, uh, Morgan Creek over the years has migrated from, you know, this alternative thinking about investments to my big aha moment, which was investing in infrastructure around technological innovations and it's a wave of about 14 year cycle is where the big wealth is created. And in fact, it's my, on Twitter, it's my pinned tweet. The greatest wealth is created by investing in something that you believe in before others even understand. Mm. You'll be mocked, you'll be ridiculed and it's worth it. And so back four years ago, we set up Morgan Creek Digital, subsidiary of Morgan Creek Capital to focus on long-term investing in the digital asset ecosystem. And having a blast. I'm actually having more fun than I've ever had in my career. And I loved every stage of my career, all of it, right? But I'm having way more fun now. I get to hang out with young, smart people. I get to focus on this innovative technology that's changing the world. Anyway, that's probably longer than you wanted for an intro. No, that's no, beautiful. That was I mean, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> that was great. That and, was, and, yeah. This is right I, up I Mike's love, alley. <laughs> I love the term time arbitrage. That is just such a great term and i i find it so interesting because like you mentioned using the that's so interesting the endowment model because that seems so foreign to wall street of the last couple decades or you know mm -hmm. having having this model that you're actually considering long-term implications you're not just looking for the next big short or something like that what what's been what's been kind of the reception from others in the field of that because it seems it seems like so much common sense to, to, to be able to look at the long term, but it's it's pretty uncommon. What's been the reception like? Well, it, it, it ebbs and it flows, right? So, you know, we, we actually created a vehicle a number of years ago called the Endowment Fund, and it took off. I mean, it was the most successful launch of a product in Merrill Lynch's history, and everybody piled in. And then something happened. Global financial crisis happened. We actually did well relatively well. I mean, we didn't do well, absolutely, but we did less badly than everybody else. And, you know, in investing, the most important thing, right? There's three rules to investing. Rule number one, don't lose money. Rule number two, don't lose money. Rule number three, don't forget the first two rules. And Roy Newberger coined that phrase, and it's because of math. But if I'm down 10, I got to be up 11. If I'm down 20, I got to be up 25. If I'm down 50, I got to be up 100 to get even. You know, God forbid you're like Russian market. I'm down 95. <laughs> when it gets back to even, which it will, because this has happened before, you'll be up 20 fold. Buying Russian equities here, great idea for the long term, not for the next week or the next month. But if you can buy spare bank at this price, you make 20 times your money probably over a long term period because you're down 95%. But that idea of um, avoiding the downside is what the endowment model is all about. And um, what happened though, is after the global financial crisis, the uh, Fed and other central banks around the world started pumping liquidity 
into the market. And that changed things. And what it did is it created this illusion that stocks, the S&P, were going up every year. And so for the last 13 years, it's been pretty much a bull market in nominal terms, not in real terms, but in nominal terms. And so that made people not want to be value oriented. They wanted to be momentum players. They didn't want to take the long term. They didn't want to make an investment today in a company that might take 10 years to harvest. S&P is up 15% every year. I'll just do that. So the endowment model kind of faded and, and can, got out of favor. And, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. That led us to say, all right, if nobody wants to think like long-term investors, then we'll find products that are, and, and the problem there was we had an asset liability mismatch. We let people come out of the fund on any quarter, but we were making investments for long-term periods of time. And that doesn't work very well. It's like a bank. Like if everybody went to the bank to take their money, that's a problem because there's not enough money for all the people because they took $1 and lent it out 11 times and made lots of dollars. So, and there's nothing wrong with that. Fractional reserve banking is not in itself evil. It just, it operates on faith and custom where everybody doesn't run to the bank at the same time. And the same thing is true in long-term investments. If everybody wants their liquidity, I can't get it. So now we raise vehicles with longer-term lockups so we can focus on making those long-term investments. Interesting. Very interesting. So the, the this kind of shift um, and, and long-term cycle, or I guess mid-term cycle, you were saying, the 14-year um, yeah. investing in something that you're very convicted about, did that fit into the endowment model or was that a kind of the next iteration ah, for you guys? Great. No, great question. So... It definitely fits into this, this endowment model of investing, but it was, it was a, a, a discovery by being at the endowment, actually. So I, I, I go back now and it's easy to tell the story because I grew up on the left coast. I grew up in Seattle and my dad sold and installed mainframe computers in hospitals. That's, that's what he did because they didn't have computers. And so if you go back to 1954, there was this innovation out in Boston, outside of Route 128, around computing. And suddenly companies could have computers, Digital Equipment Corp, uh, Wang, my favorite company name, and others. And uh, 14 years later, there's an innovation out in Silicon Valley on a microchip. And suddenly computers could be smaller. And companies like Intel and uh, Cisco were formed, and they, and they did pretty well, right? Then in 1982, 14 years later, and why it's always 14 years, I don't know exactly, but it's really because young people invent all the new stuff because they don't know not to, and they don't know what they don't know. (laughs) And so they just go ahead and do it. Mark Andreessen, 19 years old, he invented the browser. Larry and Sergey invented this company, Google, which I'll talk about in a second, in their 20s. And so it's that young generation that gets innovation going because the old guys are like, I'm I'm fine. My flip phone's (laughs) fine. I don't need a smartphone. And it's true. Uh, I can find myself that as I get older. But the key was, uh, I grew up, I said, in Seattle, many of my friends, they don't work anymore. They went to work for this little company called Microsoft. I was too stupid to do that. Now I defend myself saying, if you've seen the picture of the original Microsoft 11, you wouldn't blame me. Now, they're multi-billionaires. <laughs> I'm not, so I shouldn't make fun of them. But they looked pretty funny. I mean, we all looked bad in the 70s. Clothes were bad. <laughs> hair was bad. But look at the picture tonight. Google the original Microsoft 11. You go, oh, my God, I wouldn't work for those guys either. <laughs> so Steve Ballmer's mom said, honey, why would you work for that company? No one would ever want a computer in their house. Mm, he has 18 billion reasons. He was right. Mom was wrong. So 14 years later. I'm at my alma mater, I'm at Notre Dame, and I'm working in the endowment office. And we had the chance to make this investment in a company called Sequoia. At the time, no one, not no one, but very few people knew who Sequoia was. It was not a famous venture capital fund. In fact, it was on the verge of failure because Don Valentine, the famous founder, had hired this guy, Michael Moritz. Michael was a Wall Street Journal reporter. He had never done a deal before. The other partners were like, Don, what the hell? We're, We're the future. Why are you hiring this kid? Turns out Michael turned out to be a pretty good investor. 
Yahoo, you know, uh, Google, a few other things, and maybe one of the greatest venture capitalists of all time. But we gave them 5 million bucks. They put half a million dollars in Google. And I actually remember this funny. I remember saying, guys, I don't get it. There are 20 search engines. There's Webcrawler and Alta Vista and Ask Jeeves. What do you need Google for? It's a stupid name. Now it's a verb, right? We <laughs> totally reinvented search because Larry and Sergey, young guys, figured out that the way to do search is not to search the whole internet. Most, most we have no idea. There are 1.7 billion websites in the world. Half of them are owned by Google. What are you talking about, Mark? Well, think about it. When you start typing a question, they've set up a website for every question that has ever been asked. And so as soon as you start asking the question, it directs you to a little tiny slice. And they've already put all the information that you need to know. And sometimes maybe there's some bias, but that's how they do search. And it revolutionized everything. And so we put in 500K and we took out 200 million. There should be a quad at Notre Dame called the Google Quad. So I now had this aha moment. This, this is a long story for an epiphany, but I had this epiphany that investing was about long-term investments in infrastructure companies around this cycle. And so 14 years later, right, the mobile phone comes along and Apple releases the smartphone, you know, the iPhone, their stock goes down 40%. Think about this for a second. They, they, they get rid of, you know, they, they, I, it's not video, but they have this iPhone and the stock goes down because people are like, people are never going to pay $500 for a phone. My flip phone's just fine. My <laughs> Razor's awesome. Well, hmm, Apple's now the biggest, most valuable company in the world. And I remember being back in Seattle at, at Craig McCaw's house. He was having an event for venture capital people. And Craig is a very famous pioneer in cellular telephony, the original flip phones. And I'm asked his, I asked his family office guy, I said, do you think the mobile net will be as big as the internet. It's like, Mark, are you kidding me? Ask me if they want a computer. Like, yeah, whatever. Ask them if they want a phone. Like, I already have two. I probably don't need another one. So yeah, it's going to be a big deal. And what it did is it created the first network. One phone, not valuable at all. Two phones, a little more valuable. Two million phones, pretty valuable. Two billion phones, really valuable. And the network effect is exponential. And look, people are bad at math. I mean, people suck at math, but that's just <laughs> linear math. Like if I say, what's two times two, both of you will say four. I say, all right, guys, what's 17 times 23? I'll wait. That is the limit of human intelligence. The average person cannot do 17 times 23 in their head. And so how are you at nonlinear exponential regression? Not very good. And so I, I do this challenge all the time. I say, take out a piece of paper. Fold it in half, fold it in half again. I defy you to fold it seven times. And it was like, I can fold it seven times, no problem. And they're like, well, okay, I can't fold it seven times. If you could fold it 20 times, it would be as high as your house. If you could fold it 30 times, it'd be the atmosphere. If you could get to 50, it'd be to the sun. And 100 is the known universe. So exponential growth is a really big deal. And so the network effect created these massive opportunities. And the light bulb went off for me. Just get in front of those waves. So buy things. And, and you, know, you, know, you know how you find them? Whatever the old people, like me now, say will rot your brain or is a fad. <laughs> you know, one of those two terms come out. Just buy it, tuck it in a drawer, and go away. <laughs> I love that. Guys. That was going to be ETF my... out of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was going to be my follow-up question. Rock your brain ETF. Right? I like it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I. That's. It's almost a long-run contrarian at its at its finest, which yeah. is which is which is amazing. And and the the fourteen-year um, pattern. Have you seen? I'm I'm going back to that. Have you seen that be? Very, very consistent. Have you done very like a back consistent. test of this? It's incredibly consistent. And okay. what's amazing, so you went 54 was the mainframe. And they had four years, 54 to 58, where you could make a fortune in deck and Wang. And that's interesting. Then you have a crash. Then 14 years later, 68, 68 to 72, Intel, Fairchild, et cetera. Then you have a crash. Then 82 to 86, 
everything's great. Microsoft, Wintel, you know, then you have a crash. Then in 2010, uh, no, then in 90, yeah, then in 96, around the internet, 96 to 2000, everything's awesome. Yahoo, eBay, uh, et cetera, Google, then you have a crash. 2010 to 2014, 2015, you have a little crash. It wasn't as big as the other crashes, but there was a crash. Right. Now in 2024, which is the beginning of the blockchain era or the trust net, as I call it. So the internet 96, the mobile net 2010 and the trust net 2024. It's when everything in the world, everything in the world, everything of value, every stock, every bond, every currency, every commodity, every private piece of real estate, every piece of art, every collectible car, every private business, all $700 trillion of assets in the world will be tokenized. And what does that mean? All a token is, is an entry on a blockchain. It's an entry on a public ledger. That's all it is. It's not super crazy and exciting. It's really pretty simple, but it's code. And we can trust code differently than we can trust people. Mm-hmm. And if you think about this, every technological evolution goes to making that trust in code better. When the internet first came out, people are like, I don't know what this thing is. And it doesn't really work very well. And, and Netflix started a company. And they're like, all right, we're going to use it. We're going to have video on demand. Well, if demand is defined as four days, it took four days to download a movie. No one's going to wait four days to download a movie. So they almost went bankrupt. And it wasn't until bandwidth was increased because South Korea innovated around uh, broadband. And suddenly you could deliver it in less than four days. And so Netflix done done pretty well, right? Pets.com. Okay, I'm going to deliver you know pet food over the internet. Failed. It's the poster child of the failure of the internet. Chewy.com. It's the same damn company. Exactly the same. But we needed GPS uh, tracking. We needed instantaneous access to information. You know, to 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 broadband. So it's these inflection points in technology and why they're 14 years. Again, it doesn't really matter, but it is very consistent. And so 2024, as great as it's been in blockchain and Bitcoin and all this other stuff, it hadn't even started, right? The players have entered the stadium. They're warming up. We haven't even played the national anthem. It was like, oh, it's the third inning, the eighth inning. It ain't even, the game ain't even started. That's. I think that's a phenomenal point because – it's amazing how much we're already talking about Bitcoin and blockchain and Web3. And it's like, I think the the current figures are maybe 5% of the world has cryptocurrency. Like global adoption is still so early yep. that it just, it just seems like it's the next huge network effect. If you, you think overlay, that- Mike, to that point, if you, if you overlay the internet adoption and Web3 adoption or, or blockchain adoption, we're in 1997. Wow. Right? right around the time when we invested in Google and eBay. I remember, I remember taking eBay to our board at Notre Dame. And they're like, let me get this straight. You want us to put money in a garage sale? <laughs> really? <laughs> really? Now think about this. So they were against it. The firm, Benchmark Capital, some of the best investors on the planet, uh, they put in... They raised an $85 million fund, 85 million, not a lot, a lot of money, right? And they put a bunch of money into eBay, not all of it, but a a decent amount. They took out $20 billion. (laughs) I mean, the whole fund was a, no, 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 I'm sorry, not 20. I'm sorry, $10 billion. The whole fund was a 96X. The whole fund. So if you put in a dollar, you got $96 back and on a garage sale company because people didn't get it. Or look at the the market cap of PayPal today and how many of the PayPal mafia are out there doing amazing things. You know, it's, we're, we're categorically optimistic, right? Humans are optimistic, right? If you weren't optimistic, you'd literally sit in your house and in, in, you know, shuddering because you wouldn't go outside because you could get shot, you could get eaten by a bear, all kinds of bad things could happen. But we're optimistic. And so we go on. It's like, I always say, who was the third guy who went out to try to get a mastodon with a spear? Because <laughs> the first two didn't come back. <laughs> so who was the third guy? 
who figured out, oh, if you hit him right under the, the chin, you can kill the mastodon. He was a hero. But, or who was the first person that tried surgery on without anesthetic you know, before we, we figured that out? <laughs> so we're optimistic and we try new stuff and that's good and we have progress. But we're also overly, um, we're, 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 we're unable to imagine the unimaginable, right? We can't imagine, right? Right now, we are talking to each other. We're, we're, we're talking, actually, we're not talking to it. We're talking to a metal box, right? A metal and glass box. And it's coming in my metal and glass box into the airwaves, into a cell tower, down through fiber optic cable, out another cell tower, into the airwaves, into your metal and glass box, and into your earphones in real time. Are you kidding me? Right. Who could imagine that 20 years ago, 30 years ago? No one. So it's really hard to invest for that long cycle opportunity set because you can't imagine. So who could imagine that money as we know it, which isn't money, it's currency. The only money is gold because money is something exists in the absence of a liability. Dollars are not money. Yen are not money. They're currencies. But who could imagine that all of money will eventually be entries on a blockchain? Not very many people. Yeah, it's it's amazing to me. And, and you kind of spoke to this. I mean, the, the thing that we are the worst at is imagining the unimaginable, right? Because we have a word for it. That that just goes to show you how big a bias it is. We have a word for it. It's kind of unimaginable, right? Yeah. And so I think the the bias is to go, okay, well, you know, I, I can't do that. Or, or I guess the thought process is, you know, I have this bias. I can't really know what's next because I can't see it. Yeah. So therefore, I'm going to tighten my time horizon. I'm going to look for the short play. I'm going to, I'm going to, and nothing against day trading. I've seen it to be profitable, but I'm going to look for this short, you know, in, interim intraday play or a week play or month play, right. At the expense of a, a longer term play that may be an, an investment that may pay off 96 X like, like the well, eBay story. I mean, right. Look, and so it, it's a great, it's point. interesting that trading, bias, right? there's nothing wrong with trading. There's nothing inherently bad about trading. It's hard. I mean, mm -hmm. it's work. And it kind of goes to income and passive income and investing. You know, we all work hard, right? We're doing what we do. We, we either create content or we, we manage somebody's assets or we, we make widgets. But, you know, we all have this, this work that we do. But if you think about it, the return on that, that work pales in comparison that it, if you can have something, take a, a piece of real estate that you own, that someone else pays you rent and you make money while you're sleeping. It's actually pretty cool. Or a royalty, right? Think about Qualcomm that every time somebody builds an Android phone, they get paid. That's kind of cool. And so they monetize their intellectual property. And then you get into investing. Sure. If I could figure out if, you know, CEO Adam tomorrow is going to wake up and, and do another great deal, like buying a gold mine, maybe I can get out ahead of AMC and it'll go up and I'll make some money. But what if he wakes up and he makes a bad investment? Actually, gold mines usually, usually are bad investments, but maybe this will be a good one. But what if he makes a bad investment and it goes the other way? That's that I don't have control of any of that. But if, if I can intuit that, let's see. All right, blockchain technology is really just an operating system for this interconnected everything. Okay, that's interesting. So what makes money when goods get traded? Marketplaces, exchanges. So what if I just own a little piece of one of the exchanges like Coinbase? Hmm, doesn't matter if the price goes up, price goes down, people got to trade it, they take a cut. That sounds pretty good. If you look at exchanges, whether it's the NASDAQ exchange or the London Stock Exchange or the Brazilian Bovespa, all of those have been great investments over the long term. <laughs> Even the LME before they you know, killed themselves the other day by letting the you know, Chinese billionaire say, oh, I'm sorry, I, I know I lost money, but I'm not going to let you take it from me. And they screwed everybody else, which just mind numbing. 
how to destroy the capital of a business in one easy lesson. But there's time arbitrage, right? There's short-term thinking. I got this angry Chinese billionaire, right? Who's giving us a lot of commissions saying he's not going to honor his, his margin call. And I'll just cancel all the trades. That sounds good. Oh shit. I just killed the golden goose. Cause now no one will ever trust my exchange again, ever. I'll just go to a different exchange. That's negative time arbitrage. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the way to, and I guess I wasn't trying to position, you know, day trading versus long-term investing. Cause you're exactly right. They are very different. Um, I guess my, my question that I was building to is with that bias in mind, right? How do we, how do we look at all of the trends that are out there? Right. Because we could make an argument for um, meta metaverse, right? That for sure. That is, that is the next 14 year cycle notwithstanding there's crossover between the two, right? Obviously, but Mm -hmm. you know, notwithstanding that crossover, okay, this is what I'm going into or quantum computing, right? This is going to be the next large leap in computing technology. We're going to be able to to calculate things we've never been able to before, right? So how do we think through these things that we might be seeing as trends or fads? And like, I like your rule earlier, okay, if some old fart says, oh, this is, this is just a fad, buddy, you know, look (laughs) into it, right? But how do we, how do we think through that also balancing it with the, the realistic and Mike, Mike give me, gives me a rough time and everybody knows who listens to this podcast, I tend to be more cynical, right? So I'm thinking, all right, great. We have all these trends, but how do we imagine the unimaginable, right? It sounds like a riddle, like a, like a trick question. No, look, like, I, it's a it, great right? question. I mean, it's, it's the question that all of us should be spending at least a little time on. In fact, you know, one of the best things to become a better investor is to spend some time every day or at least every few days just away, right? Not staring at your screen, you know, take a hike, take a walk, meditate, whatever it is, and, and actually just think and, and try to cobble together these ideas because you're 100% right. Look, the metaverse, the metaverse, oh, it's, it's just Facebook. <laughs> no, come on. I mean, just, just think about that one for just one second. The metaverse is the decentralization of technology and the erasure of nation states and, and industrial conglomerates. It's clearly what the decentralized world is. So the idea of a centralized organization being the metaverse, it's an oxymoron. It's jumbo shrimp or military intelligence or whatever. <laughs> and it, it, just, it just doesn't work. And so, but the metaverse is big. Okay, so so maybe the metaverse is is this next trend, and my fourteen year cycle is all about computing power, mainframes, microcomputers, personal computers, internet, mobile net, trust net, and to your point, maybe the next is quantum net. I actually like that. I'm gonna think about that a lot. Um, well, I'm out skiing next week with my son, so there are other cycles could be coincident with the same 14-year cycle, or maybe they could be offset. Maybe within the 14-year cycle, there's a seven-year offset for these other secondary or second-order uh, effects. And you know, the metaverse is clearly something that, that is created out of this innovation around computing power. Um, and so we, we, we do have to think, okay, well, what does that mean? Does it mean I should invest in these centralized organizations that are renaming themselves? It's kind of like when, remember when Long Island Ice Tea named themselves Long Island Blockchain? Stock went crazy for a while. Like, but what do you do? I mean, you don't do anything in blockchain. You make you make tea. I mean, but it's a great meme play, right? Yeah, but 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 look, they did it in in 2000 in the last bubble. I mean, most of the day traders today weren't you know, they were in preschool, but I lived it and I we invested in a company true story called art technology group and what they did this all this company did they helped companies change their name to dot com because if you change your name to dot com price went up so these guys actually then listed as a public company they were a consulting company long story short we had put some money in through a firm called tudor ventures up in boston and our cost basis was 50 cents the stock went public at a hundred dollars 
So it made 200 times our money. And I, I called the, the principal and I said, you know, what should we do? He says, I'm an insider. I can't really talk. Um, but I can tell you two things. Revenues, 6 million. Market cap, 6 billion. And there was a silence. And he's like, Mark, did, did, did you hear me? I'm like, yeah, I heard you. I'm like, I'm, I'm trying to figure out. So get, get, like, get rid of it. Now, here's the crazy part. It went to four. So it went down 96%. Now think about that. At four, it was still an eight bagger off our cost. But we sold at 100 made 200x. So, but the thing is that company didn't do anything. And these, so the third part of the question is, so you got the main wave, then how do you have, then do you have these other opportunity waves, but then you got the scams that come into it that you want to avoid. So there's lots of cross currents in how you try to think about these, these big themes. But then the other thing is if you spend too much time thinking about it and not enough time acting on it, right? You get, you know, analysis by paralysis or paralysis by analysis, you miss all the opportunities. And this is to me, one of the things that's most, most, most important about investing is winning investors, great investors lose more often than bad investors. Everybody say, what are you talking about? No, they have to win. I'm like, no, 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 no. They do win a lot, but they lose a lot. The reason losers, bad investors don't win or lose, they don't do anything. They're so afraid of losing that they don't actually commit capital. So to your point, rather than try to figure out, do I, can I figure out which is the one? I like to put bets, and there are bets, in a lot of different places. And then when things start to go well, double up. Most people want to double down, right? When things go against them, they want to put more money in to prove that they're right and the market's wrong. The market is never wrong. Hmm. The market is always right. You, you are wrong. And when we make mistakes, it's okay as long as you Ralph. Okay. And it, we need to talk about this because, you know, it was from Dean Smith and it's March Madness and Tower Hills play tonight. So recognize the mistake. Not that hard. It's usually right in your face. Here's the hard part. Admit it. Yes, I made a mistake. And again, you guys are too young, but there was a show on TV a hundred years ago called Happy Days. And there's this guy, Arthur Fonzarelli, the cool guy who said, hey, and he couldn't say the word wrong. He's like, I was, he couldn't say the word wrong. You got to say you're wrong. Then you got to learn from it. Most important thing. And the thing in investing is with every investment, we get richer or wiser, never both. We either learn something or we make money. Because when we're right, we don't actually analyze. We just say, oh, look how smart we are. Well, of course, we're so good. When you lose money, you learn. And then you got to forget it. So, and the forgetting is really important. And this goes to the other, the other great coach who's still in the tournament as well. Uh, University of New Jersey at Durham, down the street. Coach K has this great line. He says, you know what separates great players slash investors from the average? I'm like, no. And he says, the greats focus on the next play. Watch the tournament games tonight and see how many times you see somebody miss a shot, go down and commit a stupid foul because they're yeah. thinking about the shot. Mm-hmm. A great player, instant erasure, doesn't even remember taking the shot, goes back, plays good different defense, steals the ball, makes a layup. That's the difference between great and lousy. And most investors are lousy, particularly traders or investors. They're constantly focused on, oh, I made a mistake and I just can't believe it. And I'm got to erase it, got to learn from it, but you got to erase it, forget it and go get the next opportunity. I, I love that mentality and love the fonts too. Just going to be careful of jumping the shark. Don't want to, don't want to do that in investing, but, but I think that's such a great point, um, especially for our listeners who are kind of thinking about, you know, what do their portfolios want to look like in the long run? Um, and this is kind of an interesting one because Austin, I'm interested to hear your take too, because Austin is very much the ETF guy. He's like, I don't want to take individual plays. I'll just grab a basket where I'm very much, um, I try and, you know, kind of spread bets around on individual things for the average investor. You know, do you think that 
what we're talking about is going to be, you know, buying an ETF in quantum computing, or is it more taking individual bets on things? And, and Austin, I'd be interested to hear your, your perspective. No, the answer is yes. You guys probably <laughs> both play Fortnite. I watched my son play Fortnite. Does he take a shotgun or a sniper rifle? No, he takes both. Because a shot is really good in some situations and the sniper is really good in another. So yes, the answer is yes, right? You definitely want to have a shoddy. You definitely want to spray. And the whole spray and pray, I, I, I prefer spray and then water the seeds that start growing. Okay. That, yeah. that just seems better to me. I, and I pray a lot too, but um, <laughs> look, hope <laughs> is not an investment strategy. Hope right. is a four letter word, particularly in investing. But the sniper rifle, 100%. And here's the thing. If you're willing to do the work, the sniper rifle is really, really awesome. Because if you actually do the work that most people won't, then you get a better shot. Right. And if you take that better shot, you can make a lot more. Look, concentrated portfolios make you rich. Every great fortune in the world came from concentration. Concentrated stock position, concentrated real estate position, concentrated business ownership. Every fortune started with concentration. Now, the joke is, how do you create a small fortune? Start with a large fortune and stay concentrated. <laughs> because if you stay concentrated long enough, competitors will come up and chip away and take all your wealth. So diversification keeps you rich. So if you are in the business of making money, which when we're young, we should be. And, you know, I, and, and I'm really good at talking because I sucked when I was young. I mean, I didn't do any of the stuff I talk about. In fact, I sent a tweet out to myself the other day, you know, advice, or maybe a year ago, advice to my younger self. Of all the things that I did wrong, that I want people not to do wrong. And the key, someone asked me, how do you become a better investor? Invest. Like all the time. <laughs> a lot. Like all the time. And do the shotgun. And do the sniper. And But when it goes against you, just move on. Just sell and move on. And when things start going, don't pull your weed. I mean, don't pull your flowers, right? Peter Lynch has this great line. He says, investing is super simple. You pull your weeds and you water your flowers. But he says, the average investor does the opposite. They pull their flowers because they're so afraid of losing and they water their weeds because they want to prove they're right. Soros is not whether you're right or wrong. That has nothing to do with anything. It's how much money you make when you're right, how much money you lose when you're wrong. And if you can constantly minimize your losses, first loss is the best loss, and let your winners run and then do that work so that you think about a sniper. You guys have seen the movie Sniper. Did this, does, does he just like randomly pull the thing out of his bag and then start shooting? No, he plans. He, he sets the stage. He gets where no one can see him. He's got the, the stuff, the camo on. He lines up the shot. He waits and he makes the kill. So, it's not like that's planning. And so if you do the work, you set the stage, you do the plan, you get the camo, you get the right rifle, you get the right ammunition. Yeah, you'll, you'll, make, some, you'll make some great investments. But that doesn't mean an ETF is, is bad. Now, the problem, the only thing on ETFs, just make sure they actually do what they say they're going to do. Because <laughs> there are no rules in what you name the ETF. So you can have value ETFs that are filled with 30 times revenue pieces of crap companies. Yeah. It's not value. Now, but they, oh, it's the new value. It's the new value. Yeah. <laughs> it will be value when it goes down 95%. Okay. <laughs> but I don't think that they're playing. And, and, and again, I, this personal experience. So when I, my first job, I had a 401k and, you know, we had like six options. And one of them was the blue chip growth fund. Sounds nice. And I, and I had a thesis that the world was going to get lousy. This is back in 91, 92. And we're going to have a recession. I'm like, I'm going to put my money in the high quality blue chips. So I moved all my money there. And we had the recession, just like we thought. And this thing went down 40%. What the hell? <laughs> and, and, and I go and I look. And it says in the footnotes, the, the blue chips of tomorrow. Like, no, 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 you can't offer yourself the blue chip growth fund. You're investing in the, the small cap crap, quote unquote, blue chips of tomorrow. Oh, oh my yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's, yeah there's a lot it's of wild stuff. I'm not, it's, it's my fault, right? I didn't yep. read. Yep. But I got to pull that I perspective. Trusted. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, 
I want to go back to Mike, you asked for my thoughts and I want to go back to what you said earlier, Mark. Um, and I, I agree with everything you said. And I think it's actually one of, one of the episodes we recorded uh, about two months ago at this point, we talked about just thinking about how you invest and approach money and, and what are your biases and knowing yourself. And so for me, I know that I am very bad at acting quickly. I take, I do the analysis paralysis thing, right? For me at, at certain points, and, and this is one of them right now, I don't have the time to go and research and then implement and act quickly because I know I won't. So I'm just going to buy a broad basket for now and hold it. And then, like you said in your answer, you know, there's different ways to double down and concentrate, right? Whether that's your skills, whether that's real estate, whether that's starting a business, right? So there are different different ways to think about investing, especially as an individual. Um, and so I, I'm interested to, to kind of hear what you would say about the asset allocation portion that you said earlier, yeah. how that's almost more important than picking the winners and losers, because it seems like you can build, you can build a great portfolio that has phenomenal asset allocation out of individual stocks, right. And individual positions. Sure. You can also do it with ETFs and it might be easier for the, the individual to do that. Factor in a lot of things. You got to do your research on those ETFs. You can't be buying on the the name of the ticker thing. But um, it seems well, like that's the answer right. more than one or the other, right? Yep. No, you're 100 right, Austin. And look, ETFs are are an amazing tool because they give you big swaths of the canvas. So if you think of a canvas, and and it's got all the different colors all over and, you know, international and emerging markets and developed markets and, and equities and fixed income and commodities and currencies and derivatives and leverage and all the things that you need to build a diversified portfolio. Using individual securities, you can do it. It's hard, like super hard because you got to decide, okay, I want autos, but do I want European autos or Japanese autos or, you know, what about this Tesla thing? I mean, is that really a, a car company? Oh, I thought it was a software company. It's a car. It sits out and it collects dust just like every other car. And oh, by the way, you're only in your car three to 4% of the time. Think about that. You're inside your car three to 4%. So I would say don't spend a lot of money on cars unless you're like really into cars. But um, the interesting thing about all of this is how you build that portfolio is important. So if you think about the four steps of, of investment, asset allocation, manager selection, portfolio construction, and security selection. So the 85% is in those first three. That is the allocation piece. And then the security selection piece is the 15%. So it really doesn't matter over the long term whether you own Ford or GM. It actually doesn't. I mean, in short periods of time, it can matter a lot for sure. But over long periods of time, it's less important than knowing should I be in automobiles or should I be in flying cars or should I be in, you know, whatever. So the big picture asset allocation, should I be in stocks or bonds, credit or equity? Should I be in currencies or commodities? Should I be long biased or should I be long short? Should I be fully hedged? Should I be in cash? Should I be in in emerging markets or international, where's the growth? All of those big pictures and those asset allocation decisions are really, really important. So that's where I always start. And I try to come up with five big themes, 10-year trends that I think are, are going to drive investment and growth. And so, you know, one of mine is, is the middle classification of the emerging markets, right? Hmm. There's about three and a half billion people that live you know, at middle class or below around the world, most of them in Southeast Asia. And most of them are going to move up, right? And it's just math. They're going to move up. You know, China alone, China took 750 million people out of abject poverty and put them in the middle class over the last 30 years. I don't know. Maybe those people now want to move up. They've seen Dallas. They want that life. So there's probably some opportunities in retail and consumer in, in China over the next 30 years, give or take, given that's the size of the U.S. and Europe put together. So that's a big thing. Well, how do you play that theme? Well, I could buy a and have bought 
this ETF called KWeb. Why? Because it owns technology companies that are making those middle-class lives better. Now, people are like, Mark, that thing's like down 90% in the last year. Yep. That's why I bought it two weeks ago. Because anytime something's down that much, you got to buy it, right? doesn't matter what it is. If something's down 90%, you got to buy it. And so how else would you play the growth of the Asian consumer? Commodities. Right? Commodities mm -hmm. is going to be more in demand. So I play it that way. Then you got to say, well, how am I going to implement? That's the, the, the manager selection piece. So manager selection, I could do it myself. I, you know, Mike and I could go decide we're going to go rifle shoot. We're going to sniper uh, and we're going to pick the stock. So I'm going to buy Tencent. I'm going to buy Alibaba. I'm going to buy JD.com. Totally fine. Totally acceptable. But what if we miss Meituan? What if we miss Pindodo? That KWeb is going to have them all. So that's outsourcing the manager to the, the group that's doing that. Now, the challenge with that is you got to pick between the managers. And Howard Marks has this great line. He says, you know, the problem with picking managers and picking people to manage your money is you have to decide between the good person who sounds good and the bad person who sounds good. <laughs> they don't let the person who sounds bad make the presentation. <laughs> That's so true. And yeah. it's so true. They all sound awesome. Mm -hmm. But then there's portfolio construction, which is let's say I pick 10 things, either individual stocks or ETFs or hedge fund managers or mutual funds. I got 10, 10% 10 each, 50% to one and 5% to the others. That matters. It matters a lot, actually. And, you know, there's, there's capitalization weighting, there's equal weighting, there's rebalancing or not rebalancing. So all those portfolio construction things matter. Now, the nice thing is most of us, we have lives. So it's like the cobbler's kids who have no shoes. We intend to manage our portfolio and we intend to rebalance and we intend to do all the work. Eh, kinda. I mean, <laughs> if I look, if, prove, truth. If I look at my IRA, I had this little IRA from you know, way back when, and I look at that relative to the things that I do where I just put it in my funds that are managed by people in my firm, it ain't close. Right? Like, oh, Mark, you have all these great ideas. Why didn't you just put them in your IRA? Because <laughs> I got busy and I just <laughs> didn't do it. And I wasn't smart like Peter Thiel to put in, you know, private shares, which is what I really should have done. I should put private shares in Morgan Creek. And then I should have written them down to the, to the, you know, basically zero in the, in the global financial crisis like he did. And so then he gets this big basis and, and, you know, he created billions of dollars. Now I, I wouldn't have created billions of dollars, but you know, Peter is a genius. He's a mad genius. <laughs> but anyway, so it's a long way of saying allocation first, spend your most time there because it's the most impactful. Um, and particularly for younger investors, I have this thing that don't listen to anything I or any other pundit on diversified portfolios and portfolio management says you're too young, right? Under 60 years old, don't listen to that. Just yeah. concentrate on venture capital, equities, tech. Like I believe, and this is not hyperbole, I believe it should be against the law for 25 to 65 year old people to own bonds. Yeah. It is a waste of time and money. You don't need the volatility reduction because your volatility reduction comes from your future earnings. That is your fixed income. What are kind of your emotions and feelings looking at blockchain now? Is this kind of like, is this really exciting? Is it, you know, what, what's kind of going through your head? Oh my God. Now? It's the greatest, look, it's, it's the greatest wealth creation opportunity I'll see in my lifetime. And I'm going to be around a long time. I got an 11 year old still. Um, so I have, I have this funny thing, you know, we're a good Catholic family. I joke, we had nine, we just skipped the middle six. So we have two older <laughs> kids and, and a baby. And so, you know, we're going to be, I'm going to be around a long time. I'll be working for a long time. And so I'm not going anywhere, but this is the greatest wealth creation opportunity I've ever seen because we're building on great tech. When you built the internet, you were building on shitty tech. Client server technology is really bad. When you built the mobile net, you were building on pretty good tech. Uh, the internet was pretty good, but now you're building on top of an installed mobile net infrastructure that is extraordinary and blockchain is a technological advance that 
is not linear, but exponential. So all these things are, are incredibly powerful. So I, look, I got exposed to, to blockchain and Bitcoin in 2013. I'm an idiot. I didn't understand Bitcoin. I wasn't running drugs on Silk Road. I was not a cryptography student and I missed it. I got blockchain. I got infrastructure, my whole 14 year cycle thing and have done quite nicely. We've made good investments uh, in infrastructure, but, but I missed the opportunity of, of you know, a generation to, to really be early in, in Bitcoin. I joke that I got introduced to it the same month as the Winklevi and uh, they're multi-billionaires and I'm not. So um, <laughs> that was dumb. But, and then the, fun, the, fun, the other funny story. So two years later, uh, you, again, you guys are too young, but there's a movie called The Graduate. And in The Graduate, there's this scene where he's asking his uncle for advice. It's one word, plastics, go into plastics, which was good advice in the 60s. And today I said one word, Jack, Big, uh, blockchain, go out to California. He wanted to live in San Francisco. I said, go work at Coinbase. And he goes out and he interviews, talks to people. And he's like, I don't know, dad, maybe it's going to be a big deal. I'm just going to KPMG safe. Gets me to San Francisco. I'm like, you're going to hate it. Whatever. And he did hate it. Quit after nine months. Um, so Coinbase goes public. He's like, all right, fine. You're right. Should have gone to Coinbase, but <laughs> you're not as smart as you think you are. I'm like, oh, do tell. I told you to go to Coinbase. He's like, yeah. But you didn't lever up the house and put all on Bitcoin. I'm like, oh, you little shit. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> and now no one's crying for my son because he works at Snowflake and he's doing great. But and I'm really proud of him. But I I think it's interesting. It's a long-winded way of saying I have never been more excited in my life. I've never had this much fun in my whole career. And I loved my career. I loved every stage of my career. But my my career has been in chapters, right? Chapter one, I work for not for profits. I was an allocator. I had fun. I loved it. I got psychic income working for the universities. Chapter two, I built a really nice asset management company, Morgan Creek Capital. Chapter three, I'm you know three years into a 20-year stint of tokenizing the world. And, and I really am having more fun now. I get to hang out with young, smart, really creative people. Uh, I'm seeing technological innovation like like the world has never seen. Uh, I now spend all my time doing venture capital, which is just so much fun, backing founders and watching them build things. And it's, again, back to that long game. If you think of it, there are only four ways in the world that you can make money. All four require you to take risk. If you leave your money in cash, you get the risk-free rate, hence the name, because you're not taking any risk. And unfortunately, if you do that, all your wealth is chewed up by inflation, right? Leave your money in the bank today. You get less than one. Inflation's eight. That sucks. So you got to take risk. You can take credit risk. First risk, you can buy a bond. Now, bonds are a actual claim. If you don't get paid, you can sue, which pretty good deal. So, but you don't get paid a lot. You get paid 2% above risk-free. It's not a very good deal. You know, look at bonds today, 2.4%. Woo, big deal. And then you can take equity risk, second risk. Equities are a contingent claim, meaning you only get paid if all the bondholders get paid. And so that, that makes 7% of risk free. That's pretty good. So equity should be at the core of your portfolio. Then you can take illiquidity risk, private investments, private equity, private real estate, private equity, private debt. It's better. You get 5% more, 12% above risk free long term. Awesome. 14, 15% compounded. Venture capital even higher. And then you can use structure or leverage. And leverage cuts both ways. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. But illiquidity and venture capital and innovation as an asset class. And for all the ribbing she's taken, Kathy Wood is exactly right. Innovation is an asset class. It is where you want to invest for the long term. And that's what I'm doing right now. That's amazing. Mark, it's been so good to have you on. I know we're running out of time here, uh, but it's just been an absolute pleasure for both right, myself and Austin. Uh, thank you so, so much for the time. We're excited too. Blockchain and Bitcoin, it's, just, it's, it's wild to think. Like we're, we're encountering the unimaginable, like we're, we're talking about. It's, it's uh, wild to be in a time when things are actually going on. And it's, like you said, it's just so exciting. No, 100%. And look, I, I appreciate you guys having me on the show. I love the fact that you guys are doing a show on, on the long term instead of all the day trading stuff. Again, nothing wrong with day trading. Totally fine. But sometimes you got to step back take a hike, think big thoughts. 
and uh, really, really enjoyed the conversation today. I appreciate all your hard work getting ready for it. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Awesome. Thanks, Thanks Mark. Mark. Thanks, As guys. always, this has been Michael O'Connor and Austin Wilson with The Long Run Show. We'll catch you next time.